Hello, everyone. You're listening to episode 207 of the Recovery Room Podcast. This is the third podcast in a series that is looking at the five stages of relationship renewal. And these stages of renewal are really geared towards couples who have decided to work together in rebuilding a healthier relationship after an affair. In this episode, we're looking at the fourth stage, the stage of cooperation. If you want to listen to the earlier podcasts in the series, and I'd encourage you to do that, start with episode number 118, in which we looked at the first stage of relationship renewal, affair exposure, looking at the ways in which an affair is discovered or disclosed. Then move on to episode number 120, in which we considered the second and third stages of relationship renewal, reaction and clarity. Reaction considers how each partner initially responds after an affair is exposed. And in the clarity stage, a number of steps are taken. First of all, the betrayed spouse gains more knowledge about the truth of the affair. The unfaithful spouse gains insight into why they had the affair and shares this with their spouse or partner. And both partners seek a clearer perspective of their past, present, and future. In fact, if they haven't done so already, it's during the clarity stage that they will decide whether they are going to continue in their marriage to rebuild it and to renew it or to move towards ending the marriage. In the final episode of this series, we'll be looking at the fifth stage of relationship renewal, the stage of connection, in which we explore how intimacy and trust are firmly established back into the marriage again. But before we get there, we're going to look today at stage four, the stage of cooperation. This is the relationship renewal stage in which spouses act as cooperating partners, working together towards satisfying change. If you want more information about this episode, including a free downloadable couples exercise and information about how you can purchase and download the full relationship renewal guide, go to affairhealing.com slash podcast 207 and you'll see all the information there. And finally, if you're in need of more personal assistance, we do offer counseling in our Central Florida offices. And for those of you who are outside of Central Florida, we do have phone coaching and couples retreats that are available. To find out information about any of those services, go to affairhealing.com. You ready? Let's talk. Welcome to The Recovery Room, a podcast presented by affairhealing.com. Here's your host, Tim Tedder. If you and your partner are working together towards relationship renewal, your ultimate goal is to experience satisfying connection and secure trust as the norm in your marriage. But before you become good lovers, you may need to practice being better partners. This cooperation stage focuses on strengthening your partnership. Now let's start by recognizing the difference between deciding to remain married and the decision to be cooperating partners. It's possible to experience the legal union of marriage without the unity of partnership. You can be together without working together. Now, let me give you an example. And let me just tell you up front, this is a made-up example. This is not real life because my wife, the animal lover, would be very unhappy if this were true. 
Imagine me wandering outside in my neighborhood one night, looking for a couple of those cats that tend to wander around, depositing their fleas in our backyard. Now picture me capturing a couple of these cats to tie their tails together. What do you think would be the result? Would they be joined together? Absolutely. Would they be unified? Absolutely not. (laughs) Your relationship was hit with a blow that likely pushed the two of you apart, perhaps far apart. And from that distance, you cannot jump right back into a secure, consistent, intimate connection with each other. You have to learn to trust your partnership first. You can begin building a cooperative partnership by taking the following four steps. Here's your first step. Assess your partnership patterns. Every relationship develops a unique pattern that's formed as each partner adapts to the other. At the beginning of most romantic relationships, you know, when the brain is focused on what attracts the two to each other, adaption seems relatively easy. Because both want to be with the other, they tend to present the best parts of themselves. They tend to focus on their partner's positive attributes while minimizing the negative ones. But this easy connection doesn't last forever. Eventually, the romantic highs that were an important part of initial bonding begin to settle into a a more sustainable attraction. Each partner gains a more realistic perspective as they become aware of their loved one's flaws, weaknesses, and the ability to hurt or disappoint. This shift, it may seem disappointing. In fact, most premarital couples I counsel don't want to believe that they will ever experience any emotional letdowns. But in reality, this emotional settling offers a context in which a deeper connection can develop between two people. It's pretty easy to love at the start of romance. It's so easy, in fact, that some men and women are enticed back into the rush of connection again by having an affair. Many only do this once. Some spend their whole lives jumping from one new experience to the next. Listen, we all long for connection. Most of us want to find a secure attachment with someone who will share their life with us. We desire someone who will get to know us, every part of us, and still value us, still love us. But this level of intimacy can only be experienced when we face moments of disconnection or disappointment and then move into the vulnerable space between us to find connection instead of shutting down or attacking or running away. Easy, right? You know it's not. All marriages, even the good ones, struggle through difficult periods. And while those difficulties drive some couples together, they push others apart. The distancing begins when at least one person starts focusing on their dissatisfaction and blaming their partner for feelings of disconnection. They justify their right to think this way by emphasizing their partner's faults and failures while ignoring their own contribution to the problems. But each partner contributes to the difficulty of a relationship because each comes into the marriage with his or her own relationship pattern, a pattern that's ingrained from childhood realities and modified by subsequent experiences. The way that each adapted to their early realities shaped the way they would eventually act and react in their adult relationships. For each of them, this is their normal. They will justify it, defend it, and judge the other person for not thinking or acting the same way. Let me give you some examples of behaviors that are the norm for some people. Todd hates conflict and will do whatever he can to avoid it. Mary doesn't like to disappoint others, and so will usually do what she thinks will please them 
regardless of what it cost her to do so. If someone points out a small failure or inadequacy in Mark, he gets angry, even if he knows it's true. And when Jenny feels criticized by her husband, whether he meant it or not, she will lash out. After an argument, John refuses to talk about it. His resolution to conflict is to let enough time go by and then forget about it and move on. Steve gets anxious whenever his wife wants to do something without him, even spending time with her friends. Pam often attacks with sarcasm and then declares, I was just kidding. Jack does well as a manager in a high-stress job, but reacts to negative emotion from his wife by shutting down and refusing to interact with her. Since Sherry had children, the bond she created with them became more important than her bond with her husband. Linda flinches every time her husband is angry and gestures with his hands, even though he has never threatened to hurt her. Behaviors like these are not born out of a marriage. They're patterns adapted from early life experiences and repeated each time they're triggered by an emotionally familiar event. These ingrained reactions are so powerful, in fact, that authors Mylan and Kay Yurkovich, in their best-selling book, How We Love, write this. The fact is, we can never truly know our mates until we understand their childhood experiences. The authors go on to describe these past learned patterns as the tunes that each partner brings into the dance of their marriage. Here's what they say in their words. Old tunes from the past can so completely shape our beliefs that we don't see that our current problems arise from old lessons we learned about how to handle feelings, needs, conflicts, gender roles, and communication. Our early experiences are so deeply woven into the fabric of our being that they determine how we respond in all our future relationships. And until we are willing to go back and hear those old songs for what they are, we remain locked in our familiar but unhealthy, unproductive dances. <laughs> early in my own counseling career, I was often encouraged when I'd noticed clients nodding their heads in approval as I described how these old tunes turned into unhealthy dances in the relationship. My optimism, however, was usually deflated once each client began speaking enthusiastically about their spouse's unhealthy patterns while utterly failing to recognize their own damaging tendencies. Perhaps even now, as you listen to this, it's easier for you to think about how it applies to your spouse than the ways it pertains to you. If you want to be a cooperating partner, focus on your own change. Be honest about the way some of your normal actions and reactions may have weakened your partnership rather than enhanced it. You know, as, as each partner takes responsibility for his or her individual tendencies, they can start identifying the ways their relationship pattern developed without blaming the other person for all the problems in it. In chapter 13 of my Affair Healing Manuals, I write in detail about three possible movements in any encounter between you and your partner. In each encounter, you are either moving against, away from, or toward the other person. Intimate, trusting relationships are built by two people who are committed to move toward connection even after they experience letdowns and hurts. Now let me explain what I mean by moving away and against. In a negative emotional encounter, the person who moves away will either physically leave or emotionally shut down. Either way, they separate themselves 
from the other person. The person who moves against doesn't separate themselves. They go after the other person. Now, this might be an extreme act of violence or abuse, but more often it's a little bit more subtle than that. It can be sarcasm, criticism, anger, arguments, passive aggressiveness, putting verbal pressure on someone to act in a certain way. And doing this, moving against or moving away, are much easier responses when we encounter a negative event that feels emotionally threatening to us. It's much more easy to do either of those things than to attempt moving towards that person. And this is going to be especially true if that response, moving away or against, was part of the pattern you learned in childhood. These individual self-protective reactions, when put together in a marriage, create a variety of negative relationship patterns when conflict arises. Let's talk about a few of these patterns. First of all, there's the attack-retreat pattern. If one partner tends to shut down and the other tends to take charge or become aggressive, the pattern that develops is one in which one partner goes after the other while the other one is retreating away from them. Each partner's patterns reinforces the other one. The retreat causes the pursuer to become more persistent, which causes the retreater to try even harder to get away. Then there's the mutual retreat pattern. This occurs in marriages where both partners tend to avoid conflict. Now, from the outside, these relationships may avoid outward displays of anger and fighting, but they fail to experience strong connection because they're not willing to enter into vulnerable encounters in order to be honest with each other. A third pattern is the mutual attack pattern. This occurs in marriages where both partners tend to move against each other in conflict. These relationships tend to be more explosive as each inflicts damage on the other. These are probably the people living next door that you want to call the cops on every time they get into an argument. There is a better way. The mutual pursuit pattern is one in which both partners commit to move toward each other. When disappointment or conflict is experienced, both partners recognize their old patterns, take responsibility for them, ask forgiveness, and quickly return to the effort of reconnecting with each other. Cooperating partners will do this again and again, building trust in their relationship. Every marriage has a pattern, and that pattern is going to have great influence on what the marriage becomes after an affair. Genuine affair healing will not end with a couple having the same kind of marriage they had before the affair. In fact, that's probably an impossibility. But here's the good news. Healing creates a stronger partnership in many couples, if they're willing to cooperate in the process. The pain you've both experienced can become a catalyst for creating a deepening bond between the two of you. Begin your cooperative partnership by assessing your relationship pattern. What are its strengths? What are its weaknesses? What are the problems that tend to show up again and again? How do you make a good team? What disappointments became the accepted norm? Is each spouse aware of his or her contributions to marriage assets and problems? What changes might be accomplished if you become cooperating partners? The answers to these questions will help you determine the goals for changing your pattern. Be honest about how each one of you has contributed to your shared pattern and identify the ways you might assist in changing it. These will be the goals that will move you towards change. 
And just as a reminder, there is an exercise provided for couples to help them through this process available on affairhealing.com slash podcast 207. That brings us to the second step of cooperation. Identify your first project. In the earlier podcast in which we looked at stage three of relationship renewal, the stage of clarity, you were encouraged to find clarity in the future by identifying common goals that lead you toward desired changes in your relationship. This shared vision for your future won't be realized in one grand moment. Rather, you will build your new marriage by working on one project at a time. What will your first project be? Now, in step one, you considered the patterns of your marriage and identified some areas that need improvement. I want you to choose one of these to be the focus of your first cooperation effort. Let me give you some examples of good project goals. Be more intentional about telling each other what's going on in your lives. Express more affection in ways that each partner appreciates. Learn to handle conflict better. Be more interested in each other's hobbies and interests. Enjoy more recreational time together. Find a satisfying balance to sex. Create a more positive, inviting home life. Regularly express encouragement and gratitude to one another. Create and maintain a financial plan. As you consider potential goals, focus on projects that benefit both of you. Ones that benefit the marriage, not just one spouse. Talk about these together and choose one to be your first joint project. And if you have a difference of opinion, I'd encourage you to proceed with the betrayed partner's choice first and agree to work on the other one later. And that brings us to the third step of cooperation. Learn together. Most couples would say they want a good marriage, but not all of them are able to build or rebuild one. Why do some who start out strong in their cooperation efforts eventually revert back to old, disappointing patterns? For many, the reason for their failure is that they are missing one of three requirements for change desire, effort, or time. So let's look at each one of these just briefly. First of all, change requires desire. A person won't change unless they want to change. Short-term shifts may be influenced by outward pressure or manipulation, but long-term adjustments require an internal longing. And in a relationship, both partners must genuinely desire a common goal or there's little hope for lasting change. If you've made it this far as a couple, I'm going to assume that you share a common desire for change in your marriage. If not, you need to go back to the earlier podcast, Stage 3, Clarity, to clarify your future. But wanting it isn't enough. You have to be willing to work at it. So yes, change requires desire, but it also requires effort. If building a great marriage was easy, well, then most marriages would be awesome and I'd be out of a job. But they're not, and my counseling career, well, it seems pretty secure. So now that you've identified a relationship project, you need to do the work. Changing old patterns or creating new ones means you have to learn and practice new behaviors. You'll most likely need help in doing this, so decide how you will learn together. Your past experience, your current knowledge, they may not be enough to guide you. Commit to gaining new insights and strategies that will help you experience satisfying shifts. Choose at least one resource to help guide you through your project. Let me give you a few suggestions. Look for books, online articles, counseling, courses, online courses or real-life courses, support groups, podcasts or other audio programs, videos, 
These are just a few suggestions. You may find some of your own. Here's how other couples have worked at learning together. Matt and Patty decided to focus on strengthening the communication in their marriage and asked their pastor for a book recommendation. And each weekend, they sat on their back porch, read the next chapter, and talked about what they were learning. John and Alex wanted to find new ways of resolving disagreement, and so they went to a counselor. In three sessions, they were able to gain a a common strategy for avoiding damaging conflict and making relationship repairs after an argument. Steph and Bryce realized their struggle in coming to agreement on money issues, so they attended a weekend course that helped them establish a plan for spending and saving. Lynn and Tom realized they needed to do a better job of expressing appreciation and affection, so they decided to use the Love Languages book as a guide. Lynn bought the paperback. Tom purchased the audio version so he could listen during his evening run. After each chapter, they talked about what they had learned. Choose a resource that works for you and start the work of learning together. And that brings us to the fourth step of cooperation. Commit to a weekly check-in. To realize change, yes, you need desire and you need effort, but you also need one more thing. Change requires time. Establishing new patterns that will last requires an investment of time. There will be moments of encouraging success, but there will be periods of disappointing failure too. To build the kind of momentum that will keep you moving through these experiences, it is important to follow a strategy that maintains your focus week after week. So I want you to do this. Decide on a weekly time and place where you will both meet to review your progress in the project. Use the time to encourage each other. If corrections need to be made, try to focus on changes you need to make rather than pointing out your partner's failures. Commit to what you will do during the next week. This weekly check-in doesn't need to be long. It may only take 15 minutes, but in this time, you are going to give attention to three topics and take turns talking about them. First is the topic of encouragement. And during this time, you should each recall at least one example of your partner's work on the project during the past week. Be specific, encourage, and thank them for their effort. The second topic is self-assessment. This is where you focus on yourself reflecting on the ways you may have neglected the project during the past week, either by failing to act or doing something contrary to the goal. If anything comes to mind, admit it and recommit to working toward change. And if you did well, give at least one example of intentional efforts you made to help reach the shared goal. And the third topic in your weekly check-in is this, next steps. Each partner should explain what they will do during the next week, What will be their contribution to the project? Is there any specific step of change that they will work on? And if you want, it's appropriate to ask your spouse for input, but don't offer unsolicited advice to the other person. That's the weekly check-in. Once a week, coming together to encourage one another, to assess your roles in working towards change, and to define the next steps you will take as you move into the following days. There you have it. Those are the four steps of cooperation that will move you into the next stage of connection where you will experience deeper intimacy and trust in your relationship. But let me say one more thing about cooperation. Right now, in your marriage, this is probably an unequal partnership. As we've talked about this, 
I've intentionally stressed the necessity of joint cooperation in this stage. Moving toward relationship healing and renewal requires the active participation of both spouses. The betrayed spouse cannot simply sit back and say, hey, you broke it, you better fix it. No, to build a marriage that will be satisfying for both participants, the betrayed spouse will need to take vulnerable steps in partnership with the person who broke their trust. That's hard to do, but marriage healing cannot happen without it. All things are not equal, though. After an affair, the relationship is imbalanced. Trust, foundational to the stability of your marriage, has been severely damaged. And as a result, the betrayed spouse will be more cautious and extra sensitive to triggers that evoke negative reactions. Reactions like fear, anger, discouragement, pain. The betrayed spouse's capacity for vulnerability is significantly reduced during a trust deficit. Linda McDonald, an affair recovery therapist and author, writes about those who choose to rebuild their marriage after their affair. She writes, Successful rebuilders choose the more difficult path of resilient perseverance. They know it takes guts to face the pain they have caused and the fact that their marriages are forever altered. But rather than fear this challenge, they choose to stay and do the hard work of recovery, both for their own broken states and the condition of their marriage. Listen, while trust is being restored, the unfaithful spouse must assume greater responsibility in this partnership. Depending on the circumstances, this may take months, maybe even years. But in time, if both do their work, the balance will be restored. As that happens, the couple will transition from shared cooperation to intimate connection. The Recovery Room Podcast is a resource provided by AffairHealing.com. For more information about the podcast and resources for affair recovery, including archives of past programs and the schedule for upcoming ones, please go to AffairHealing.com slash podcast. I'm your host, Tim Tedder. See you next time.